I love that song. And uh, in two weeks, we're going to start into the final section of Genesis, which is the Joseph story. And the Joseph story lines up so much with that song. I just, I think we could sing it every week. Not that we should, but we could sing it every week during the Joseph section, and it would, uh, it would help focus us on the truth that in the fires, in the floods, no matter what's going on, God is sovereignly at work for His glory, for our good. That's an anchor that you're going to need to hold on to today as we get into Genesis chapter 34. Uh, it's on page 28 in the Pew Bibles, and uh, you can find that. I'm going to pray, and, and then we'll dive into things. Father, uh, thank you that you are the sovereign ruler over the universe, and when the small things in our lives are chaotic and falling apart, or, the, or it seems like our whole life is falling apart, or when we look at history and we wonder how could anything good come from the things that have happened recently or in the past, how would you redeem those things? Thank you, Lord, that we can see in your word over and over again how you are sovereignly working through everything how your plan is coming to fruition, and we can trust you, and that even, or especially when it hurts the most, we can know that you are redeeming that pain, you're redeeming that hurt, you are bringing good from it in the end. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, so far, um, we've been looking at the story of Jacob these last few months. Jacob, uh, he's renamed Israel. It's the name that the, the country is named after. If we look at this, this first map here, you see that inside that oval is where Israel is. It's this teeny little chunk of land in the perspective of the world, small enough that at this Zoom level, all of the other countries on the map are labeled, but Israel is not. Now, maybe that's a political statement by the folks at Google's map, Google Maps, but it's just it's this little sliver of land. And yet, through all of history and continuing even today, that little chunk of land has played a huge role in world history. As we have tried to understand the story of Jacob, it sets the stage for understanding how that, that land of Israel is used throughout history. We've looked at Jacob and how 4,000 years ago or so, God uh, called him out of the land of Israel, which wasn't called the land of Israel at the time, it was the land of Canaan, sent him on a journey about 1,000 miles north to the city Haran. He went because his brother Esau was trying to kill him, was plotting his murder. Jacob was a deceiver and a trickster. He had earned the wrath of his brother, and so he fled for his life to his relatives in Haran. Twenty years later, he returns to the general vicinity of where he had left. We saw how he stopped in Mahanaim. He sent a giant gift of animals ahead to meet his brother Esau, who was coming towards him, looking like he was going to conquer him. He sends the gift to try to make peace. Jacob then spends a night uh, wrestling with God. God in the flesh, or at least an angel so closely related to God so representative of God that Jacob can basically refer to him as though he was God. They wrestle all night long. The angel, or God in the flesh, lessens himself, limits himself in order to bring himself down to the level of Jacob, even to the point where it seems like Jacob might prevail at different points. But then, in that supernatural moment, God touches the hip socket of Jacob, puts his hip out of joint, showing him that, look, even just with a little tap, 
I can wound you. God, in his grace and his mercy, wounds Jacob, and he would carry that limp with him the rest of his life. We read this in Genesis 33, 28. God says this to Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The name Jacob means deceiver. The name Israel means strives with God or even God strives with him or God fighter. It's as though in that night, in that moment, after all those hours of sweating and blood and scrapes and bruises and a hip out of joint, after all of that wrestling, God says to Jacob, look, this, this is who you really are. This is a picture of your life. Your whole life, you've been fighting. You've been fighting with your brother. You've been fighting with your dad. You've been fighting with your uncle. You've, been, uh, you've collected all these family members, and they're always fighting with each other. And all this time, you thought you were just fighting against other people. But really, Jacob, you have been fighting against God your whole life. You could have been a friend of God. You could have been an ally of God but you've chosen to be a fighter of God. And so he, he names him Israel. I, I would say in honor of that, that fighting with God because God seems to be honoring Israel with this counterintuitive honor. that You, you are the one that I have chosen. You're going to carry the namesake for my people and yet you're, you're always fighting with me. And then all through history, you see the people of God always fighting with God over and over. And yet God continues to love them just as God has continued to love Jacob, Israel. Well, after the wrestling match, Jacob headed south to meet his brother. Surprisingly, they have a peaceful reunion. There seems to be something of a reconciliation there, at least at the surface level. But they go different ways. Esau heads south again to Edom. Jacob heads west into the promised land. He stops for a little while at Succoth, and then he continues on to Shechem. This is on the the west side of the Jordan River, and today we refer to it as the West Bank. You hear about it in the news a lot. Shechem is one of the main towns in the West Bank. So when you hear about fighting and shelling and rockets and all that in the West Bank, you can just think of Shechem. How long did Jacob intend to stay in Shechem? How long did he actually stay? We don't know, but it seems to be that he semi-permanently settled down there. Where our story picks up today, they have settled. They've unpacked. They've got things set up. There is, for the first time in months, a little bit of free time. And Jacob's daughter, his only daughter at this point, Dinah, wants to take advantage of that free time. As many teenagers feel, she feels trapped in the house, held back. She wants to go out, be with friends. She wants to spread her wings. She wants to see what the world has to offer. And so Dinah appears to sneak out, and she wants to go meet some locals. She thinks there's nothing dangerous about it. There's nothing wrong with this. It's just, mom and dad are so cramping my style, I just need to get out of here for a little while and figure out who I am. And she gets so much more than she bargained for. Genesis 34, 1 through 31. It's on page 28. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, 
whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, so the name of the city, it's also the name of the prince of the city. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now this is so abrupt and shocking. There's, there's not much leading up to this point in the story to get us ready for this. And you can imagine the first time that the Israelites heard this from the mouth of Moses. It would have been shocking. One minute, she's out trying to make friends, meeting some of the local girls. The next minute, she is a victim of rape. Now, we, we can't see in our English translation some of the little hints that are given to us here. There's some cultural background that'll help us understand some things. As a young woman of marrying age, culture demanded that she not leave the house, that she's essentially in quarantine until she gets married. But she wants her freedom. She wants to escape the the shackles that she feels are on her. Also, the phrase in there, to see the women of the land, there's a there's a local, um, kind of a local message embedded in that, that that we completely miss here in the United States. But Leah is essentially looking for a little bit of trouble. She's, she's up to no good. She's looking for some ladies to party with. She got more than she was looking for, though. Adults, some of you have similar stories. You exercised your freedom and rebellion a few years back. You thought it was typical, maybe even innocent. Everybody does it, right? You just, it's part of being a teenager, but you got your heart broken. Or maybe your virginity was stolen or manipulated from you. And you have pain and regret that rises up as you hear this story. Young people in the room, I want you to hear me real clearly. The evil, and it was evil, the evil that was perpetrated against Dinah was not her fault. Shechem is 100% responsible for his sin of rape against Dinah. But it would have been impossible for that to happen if Dinah had honored the authority and the protection of her parents. If she had stayed where they wanted her to stay, if she had stayed under the authority and protection of her parents, that could not have happened. Your parents, probably, you feel like they, they limit you, they hold you down, they hold you back. God has given them to you as an authority over you and as a protection over you. This story tragically illustrates what can happen when you reject that. She was not looking for this kind of trouble. She was looking for a peer group to belong to. She was looking for some fun. She was looking for some excitement. But those peers could not or did not protect her from the evil that would come against her. They may have enabled and set up the attack even. Proverbs 13.20 says this. Young folks, I want you to hear this clearly. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. It's one of my favorite verses. I come back to it over and over again. Notice that it says, you don't, it doesn't say you have to be a fool to suffer harm. The companion of fools will suffer harm. You could be the smartest one in the group, but if you're the companion of fools, you can suffer great harm. 
And we see that, at least in part here with Dinah. Even though Shechem bears 100% of the blame for what he did, there's also another man who is also somehow responsible for this evil. His name is Jacob. He was not leading his family in the way that God called him to. God had met with Jacob at the place called Bethel in the land of Canaan 20 years earlier. At Bethel, God had promised to bring Jacob and his family back to Bethel. And when God told Jacob then to pack up in Haran and head back, this is what he said, Genesis 31, 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So God specifically identifies himself as the God of Bethel. That's where the the angels are going up and down the the ladder in the vision that Jacob had there at Bethel. He says, I am the God of Bethel. Therefore, leave, go back to the land that I've promised you. He's saying, go back to Bethel. And so Jacob leaves. He's got a thousand-mile journey. How long did that take? He's got the stressful reuniting with his brother. He's, you know, the gift. He's got all of this stuff. And he, he stops his journey, his 20-year round-trip journey. He stops it 20 miles short of Bethel, and he settles his family. He was not where he was supposed to be. He was not where God had called him to be. What is it about the city of Shechem that has drawn him and said, this is a good place to stop? I know I'm only 20 miles from where God told me to go, but this is good enough. Men, are you leading your families in the way of God? The way that God has called you? Are you stopping 20 miles short? Do you look around and you think, it's good enough? I'm far enough. I'm better than all the losers I see around me. I think I'll rest here. What comes of this mess? Shechem has treated Dinah like a piece of property. He has violently used her for his own lustful passion. What happens now? Verse 3. And his, that is Shechem... His soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, and he spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now, young women, don't buy this. All right? Words are cheap. Emotions, feelings are cheap. He speaks tenderly to Dinah. He feels like his soul is drawn to Dinah. He, he thinks he's in love. He just raped her. This is not love. Words are cheap. Actions are expensive. If there is a young man in your life, and he is he's speaking tenderly to you, and yet he is uh, rough with you, if he tries to draw you out of the protection of your parents or away from your friends, or if there's even any hint of him trying to to control you and, and harm you and stifle you, then I would encourage you to run from those sweet words because the actions are telling you the truth. I think of my daughter Katie, who has a friend at college who was part of this great close friendship group, and then a guy came along 
She got herself a boyfriend, and that boyfriend has systematically broken each of those relationships, pulled her out, isolated her, and now she is by herself with this guy who is abusive. The friends have tried to rescue, tried to show her the the light, but she only hears the tender words of this abusive guy. Young Shechem goes to daddy and he he demands that he get the permission from Jacob to marry Dinah. Hamor doesn't discipline his son. What a failure, the dad. He is essentially saying, it's okay that you raped this stranger. Now let's come up with a plan together so that you can keep her. That's what he's doing. Dads, do you hold your children accountable for their sin? Do you do it in a diligent way where even when you're tired, even when it's inconvenient, even when you'd just rather be left alone, even and especially when their sin mirrors your sin, are you holding them accountable? Or are you behaving like Shechem's dad? Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. How did he hear? How did the message get across there? We we don't know, but imagine the, the rage that rises up in Father Jacob here. And yet, he did nothing. Now, is he wisely waiting for his sons to come as backup so that he can go confront Shechem? We would hope so, but the story doesn't play out that way. Six. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it. The men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now the sons of Jacob, they are they're righteously angry. Their sister has been violated, and they should be angry. They're ready to pound Shechem. This is a right response to this injustice. Notice the Holy Spirit there, who is is inspiring Moses to write this for us, he skips ahead in time. He refers to the land, the area, as Israel. It's not known yet as the land of Israel. This is, in fact, the only point in this chapter where the word Israel is used. And it doesn't refer to the guy, it refers to the land. And it's, it's speaking of this, this future reality, this future moral code. He says, this should not be done in Israel. This is an evil that must not be part of your nation, your future nation. Verse 8. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. The land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. So Hamor appeals to Jacob and his sons with a promise of economic prosperity and social security. He says, intermarry with us. Become one of us. We'll become one people and you will have security. We won't be at war with you because you will be our kin. And you will have great property. 
Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So Shechem can't stay quiet. He can't let his dad do the negotiating. He's got to burst in and say, Look, you name the price. Whatever it is, I will pay it. Of course, I'm living off of daddy's wallet, but I will pay whatever price to have this woman, your daughter, your sister. Cheap words, right? Because you just treated her like property. You used her. You abused her. So long as we're talking about family, remember that this family has a history of women being what I might refer to as dangerously beautiful. They keep getting the family in trouble, we might say. With their beauty. I know that's funny, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Owen. <laughs> it's nice to have Owen not, not screaming today. <laughs> so you remember Sarah, who's so beautiful that Abraham lies about her to save his skin. We've got Rebecca. We've got Rachel. We've got now Dinah. There were some serious babes in this family but it doesn't turn out to be the blessing that you might expect it to be. Which reminds me of Proverbs 31.30 that says this, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, young ladies in this room, please hear me on this. Don't put your hope in your looks. The corrupt system of the world out there is constantly trying to lie to you, to tell you that what you need are these clothes, this makeup, this hair, this look. You need to show the skin in this way. You need to be attractive in these ways in order to be valued, in order to be loved, in order to be wanted, in order to get the man that you want or the job that you want or whatever. And it's, it's all a lie from a broken, corrupt system. None of that matters. What matters, in this verse, it says, is not charm, it's not beauty, those are fleeting, those are vain, those are deceitful, but a woman who fears the Lord, a woman who respects the Lord, a woman who walks in obedience to the Lord, lives for the Lord, is to be praised. So all, all, the, all the doctored pictures and videos that make your friends look a little more attractive than you know they actually are, that's poisoning your soul a little bit at a time, making you think, if I was just more of this, then I'd be happy. This week, our family got to go to southern Kentucky, northern Tennessee for a few days, and uh, it was a great time. We got to go to some beautiful places. Uh, One of the places we went is this next picture, uh, Anglin Falls, and uh, this is a picture that I shared on a regular Facebook post. Many of you guys saw it. Uh, It was a beautiful place, it was a beautiful hike, it was a muddy mess of a hike, but it was still beautiful. But I did a little bit of an experiment. I'm part of a Facebook group for Kentucky outdoor nerds, and we, we share pictures of the places that we've been. And so I took the photo, and I did a little bit of doctoring, and turned it into this, okay? That's not even the the right sky. I stole the sky from another picture, put it in there, changed the light, posted it to that Kentucky Facebook group, and it was all this 
praise. Oh, that's amazing. The sky, all oh, the sky. How did you get that? It's great. You know, it's a lie, right? Next one. Split bow arch. There's nothing you can do with a cloudy day. You, you can't get good shadows. You can't get good warm tones. You add a little software to it. Add a sun that doesn't actually exist there, but now has rays coming in. And you get a much more beautiful picture that gets all kinds of praise on the Facebook feed. But it's a lie. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Remember that Jacob himself had paid a huge bride price to marry Rachel. He had worked for seven years, already twice the going rate, in order to marry Rachel. But he's tricked into marrying Leah, and he's got to, marry, he's got to work another seven years, four times, in order to get the woman that he wanted. Shechem comes along, offers to pay whatever price out of his daddy's wallet that they demand. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing. We can't give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. You know that God had given the, the symbol, the the, the sacramental rite of circumcision to the family of Abraham, marking them off as his special people. Now Jacob, whose name is Deceiver, his sons have watched him, have learned from him how, how to be a deceiver, and they are now deceiving their neighbors. They're using what was to be a holy symbol of God's people in order to trick people and set them up for revenge. That symbol, which was meant to set the people apart, it was specifically chosen for, by God to, to um, prevent this kind of intermarriage. Circumcision becomes obvious at that very moment when the people of Israel are about to mingle with the pagan people of the land that they're not supposed to. It was a holy sign given to these people, and yet these boys are going to use and corrupt that holy sign. Verse 15, only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. They should have been gone anyway. So they're deceiving the people of the city of Shechem. Even if they were serious in their plan, their plan would still be sinful because God has called them to be a separate group and to not mix with them. I, I'm amazed that the people of Shechem think this is a good idea. First, Hamor and Shechem embrace this, and then they got to go convince the others that it's a good idea too. Verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. Look at that last sentence. Shechem, 
who saw a stranger, was inflamed with lust for her, raped her, is the most honored of his father's house. What a sad family. 20. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city where all the powerful people would be, where all the business was conducted and judgments were made. They came to the gate of the city and they spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. So Hamor goes into politics mode. He has to convince all the guys in the town that this circumcision thing is a good idea. How does he approach it? He appeals to their lust for money first. He says, look, the land's big. We'll share it with them. It'll increase our wealth. We'll do business with them. We will make a profit. They want more money. They want more stuff. They want the future daughters of the family to be their wives. And they want to become one family with them. But we'll see in the next section, the real motivation really is financial. 22. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Now, up until this moment, I expect that many in the town were nodding their heads. This is a good deal. I like this. We will get wealthy. In this. Wait, what did he just say? We have to do what? He goes back to their greed then. Tells them what the real plan is. He, he's he's going to lay out how, look, if we just give it enough time, they will assimilate into, they'll absorb into us. They will become one of us. And then all that they have will be ours. Now, they're not talking about outright thievery, like go and raid, take all the stuff. They're saying over time, slowly, we will overtake them and we will enrich ourselves with what they have right now. It is the same way today for us. The world is constantly trying to assimilate you, suck you in, draw you in, make you one of its own, and rob the blessings that God is giving you. Verse 23. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Again, I'm just amazed that they all went along with this, but their lust for and greed for stuff was great. Now, as you can imagine, there's a bit of a recovery time for circumcision, especially if you are an adult, especially if this is being done with a flint knife, as was the case then and as is still the case in many Orthodox Jewish communities. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So we get a little bit more backstory here. They've, they're holding on to her as they make this bargain. She is captive in their house. Now she's rescued, but at what great cost. This is not just revenge. This is not justice. This is murder. This is evil. Simeon and Levi are sons of Leah, 
brothers of Dinah. Remember, you got, you got four wives in the family. They all got a bunch of kids. And there's this rivalry always raging. Rachel is the loved wife. Joseph, at this point, the only son of Rachel, is the loved son. And everybody else plays second fiddle. These boys, Simeon and Levi, have watched as their mom has been uh, given the short end of the stick over and over again. Rachel, Joseph are treasured. Leah, Simeon, Levi, Dinah, they are disposable. They're not valued. And this anger, this bitterness grows inside of them so that when the righteous anger over what had been done to their sister comes along, it mixes with this bitterness that's been growing in them and it turns into murder. It turns into such evil. 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured, plundered. Again, this is not justice. This is evil. These men are supposed to be representatives of the God Most High. They are part of the chosen family meant to grow into the chosen nation that is to be the representative of God on the face of this earth. And here they are, murderers, thieves, kidnappers. They are bloody rioters. They are hoodlums. They are worse than what we saw at the Capitol on January 6th. You remember the pictures, the videos. The, I mean, these, these regular guys, enraged with what they feel is a righteous anger, fighting against the police officers. Or months of anarchist riots throughout our nation last year. Go to this next picture. This is a map. Blue dots represent protests. Orange means it's a protest that also turned into a riot. Look how many there were just in three months last year. And yet what Simeon and Levi have done is worse. It's even more evil. What will... Jacob do? How will he respond to the sin that his sons have committed? He has been a passive failure. He's been enabling their rage by not being the father that they needed. Will he now come down in judgment on them? Will he hold them accountable? Verse 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household, meaning you guys are doomed too. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? What a sad, sorry man Jacob is. 
He's concerned about himself. His boys have used the holy sign of circumcision to entrap people, to murder them, to kidnap their wives and children, and to plunder all of their stuff. And he says, boys, I'm mad at you because you've made my life difficult. You've you've made me stink to the people of the land. They're going to be angry with me. They're going to come after me. I am now in danger because of you. What a sad way to respond. The boys, maybe they expected this. Maybe Maybe they're surprised that even now Jacob is just thinking of himself, but they respond with this question, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And of course the answer is no. Absolutely not. The sin of Shechem to violate Dinah is sin. It was sin for Hamor, the the father of Shechem, to work with his son to try to work out a deal and force Dinah to stay as a wife. It was sin for Simeon and Levi to deceive them. It was sin for Hamor and Shechem to plot the theft of Jacob and all that he has. It was sin for Jacob's sons to murder, to kidnap, to steal. It was sin for Dinah to have gone out against the will of the family in the first place. But Jacob, the one who God renamed Israel, the one who is called Israel and called to be Israel, it was the sin of Jacob to not fully obey God and go that last 20 miles to where he was supposed to be. It was sin for Jacob to favor some sons over others and embitter his children with favoritism. It was sin for Jacob to sit by passively as a coward as his daughter is violated. It was a sin for Jacob to care more for his own skin than for the murder and the kidnapping and the plundering perpetrated by his sons. This story is full to the brim with sin. It is an ugly mess. It is a pitiful story of a pitiful family. Where is God in all of this? If you went back and you read the whole chapter, God is not mentioned once. That's on purpose. It's meant to make a point for us. These, these are meant to be the chosen people of God, and yet they have they've ignored God. They do not trust that He is the, the bringer of justice. They don't trust that He will hold them and others accountable for their sin. They don't trust that He's involved. They think that God is out to lunch. They have ignored Him. They have done life as though God does not exist. Have you been there? Can you look back at a season of your life, maybe you're in the season right now, where you've really wanted nothing to do with God. You've, you've cared nothing for Him. You've ignored Him. Maybe even you've fought against Him like Israel. What was the fruit of the season of your life where you were ignoring or in full rebellion against God. It was not good fruit. Hopefully it wasn't as bad as what we see in the story. But you know as well as I do 
that when you live your life as though God does not exist or God is not involved or God doesn't care about you or you just refuse to obey him, you know the evil that can come of it. You still have the scars on your heart, maybe on your body, to prove it. So where is God in this chapter, in this story? Where is God in your season of rebellion? He's in the same place as he was in this awful chapter. He's right in the middle of it. Invisible, unmentioned, unnoticed, but right there working out his sovereign and gracious plan. He's continuing to love Jacob, just as he continues to love you, even in that series of that season of rebellion. He's pursuing Jacob with a grace that will not let him go. It's a fierce grace. It's a relentless grace. That is really good news. Because if God's grace was a wimpy grace, if it was a conditional grace, if it was a, a fair-weather grace, we would all be hopeless because we are all a picture of Jacob and his sons and Shechem and Hamor and Dinah. That is who we are. And yet God pursues us with fierce and relentless grace that will not let us go. It is not based on our performance, our goodness, is based on his choosing of us, his love for us, his eventual sacrificial death of Jesus for us. If you have been chosen by God you, and you are born again in Christ through repentance and faith, that same fierce, relentless grace that has stuck with Jacob after all these failures over and over and over again, that same fierce and relentless grace is yours. May you marvel at this. May you, may you marvel at the fact that I mean, if we could see into each other's hearts, we would see Jacob. We would see Shechem. And yet God has been gracious to us. May you rest in the security of this. May you not take advantage of it, testing the patience of God like a defiant child tests his father or mother. May you trust instead your heavenly father. And may you walk in humility and obedience. May you enjoy full communion, full friendship with him. May you know the joy and the peace that comes from walking closely with God, rather than running from him or resisting him. May you know the redemption that comes with the fierce and relentless grace of God. Many of you in this room probably have some things in your heart that are, that are trying to well up as we go through this story. And there are things that you've, you've pushed down. You go, I do not want to remember that. I want that to be the past. I don't even want that to be true about my past. I wish that had never happened. I had never done that. It had never been done to me. God is working to redeem even that. When we get into the Joseph section, we're going to see how Joseph is is so mistreated. So much injustice comes after, comes to Joseph. And yet at the end, he's able to say, look, God was at work in this. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. This story is even setting that up for us. 
As God is at work in this family, redeeming over and over again the sin, the mess, the ugliness, so he is at work in your life and the life of this church, redeeming the sin and the mess and the ugliness. None of us are worthy to have been chosen, to be redeemed, to be loved, to be saved. But Jesus is worthy. And in his sacrificial death, he takes his worthiness and he gives it to us as a gift of grace. We're going to sing of that worthiness now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have chosen to include this ugly chapter in your words so that we can see your fierce and relentless grace. We can see you working to faithfully love and redeem your people even as they rebel against you. Lord, it gives us hope to know that though we are entirely unworthy, you, Lord Jesus, are worthy. You've given that worthiness, that righteousness, that goodness to us as a gift. So, Lord, continue to refine us, continue to redeem us, continue to make us more holy, make us more clearly into the people that you've called us to be. May we put off our old ways and put on the new things of Christ. And one day, Lord, we will stand with all of the redeemed and we will sing of how worthy you, the Lamb of God, are.